Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The time is now to open new doors, create new connections, and reveal untapped potential. It's the perfect opportunity to take your business further, to expand your reach, and find success in unexpected places. So whether you're looking to discover new markets or find ways to connect with new customers, Export Development Canada can help. Let's get back to global business and see what the world has to offer. As Canada's prime minister joined leaders from around the world in Glasgow, Scotland, to hash out a strategy to respond to climate change, to chart a path away from fossil fuels, it's fair to say that many people looked at the pictures and read the news with some skepticism. Here in Canada, we've set very ambitious targets for the next decade, but it's not clear to everyone that we'll be able to stop our emissions from growing, let alone cut them by a half or a third or or even 20%. And so as we come up on the two-year mark of when the COVID-19 pandemic started here, many people are feeling burnt out. They're tired of the news, skeptical of some of our targets for climate change. But Rachel Sampson Research Director for Clean Growth at the Ottawa-based Canadian Institute for Climate Choices has a different take. Samson says if you think back to past crises, like the Great Recession of 2008, maybe the 9-11 terrorist attacks, generally these caused interest in climate change to wane. This crisis was different. With the pandemic, maybe there's more of a realization about the interconnectedness we have with the world, Samson told me. I'm Gabe Friedman, and you're listening to Down to Business. And this week, I spoke to Samson about the challenges of combating climate change, the COP26 conference in Glasgow, and what it means for the Canadian outlook and economy, and the obligation we have to take risks and seize the day. As always, this interview was edited for clarity and brevity. Rachel, thanks so much for joining me today on Down to Business. Happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you. I think it's fair to say that going into this climate change COP26 conference, expectations were actually fairly low about the chances for any big policy announcements. And I wanted to ask you what your initial impressions of the conference have been. Yeah, I'm pretty optimistic about the outcomes that we've seen so far coming out of the conference. I mean, we're we're now in a position where countries representing 90% of global GDP have committed to a net zero emissions target by mid-century. And the addition of India, for example, committing to reach net zero by 2070 was very significant and I think somewhat unexpected. So some some big developments. And then the side agreements as well on coal, on oil and gas financing, on um, the Mark Carney's initiative, on, on financial firm commitments and um, deforestation as well. So there there have been some very significant commitments come out of the out of the conference so far. Yeah, it's something I think a lot of Canadians don't even know happens. Basically, our government helps oil and gas companies build their projects by giving them loans, guaranteeing their loans and other support. And so I guess the announcement that was somewhat unexpected in which a lot of people think could take billions of dollars of financial support away from the oil and gas industry is that the Canadian government and others have agreed to stop financing internationally. You mentioned this. Tell me a little bit about why this is a big deal. Well, I mean, we know 
that um, fossil fuel use and fossil fuel production has to come down uh, in order to achieve these net zero goals. And it's better if it starts to come down gradually rather than have uh, what we call it this disorderly transition where you have big stops and starts. So these types of commitments from governments on financing, for example, really send this market signal that investment should be slowing down and that investment needs to shift into other sources of energy to uh, displace fossil fuels over time. I mean, one of the things about climate change that's difficult is it's hard to see a straight line sometimes. Our government is still going to finance projects domestically. And, you know, I've even heard from someone in the oil and gas industry today who was saying, but this could hurt poor countries or, or developing countries could mean that they stay on coal for longer because they can't get oil and gas projects built. They can't switch to like a less carbon intensive form of fossil fuel. Are you a supporter ultimately of it? And if so, why? I mean, I think we need to think about things on a case-by-case basis. So obviously, there there may be some st- circumstances in developing countries where, particularly in the near term, you know, th- they need to rely on, on fossil fuels. But when we're looking longer term, we need to start shifting all countries and particularly new investments towards cleaner forms of energy. Uh, and that doesn't mean that Canada shouldn't support its exporters. In fact, we suggest that it should be supporting our exports significantly. But in some of these new emerging areas where we're going to see market growth through global low carbon transition, so some of our clean tech companies, clean energy sources, those types of companies really do need some support to to grow our exports. So it's more of a shifting. It's not a decreasing of overall financing for the economy or for, for Canada's export success. It's about shifting from where that financing goes. And in some cases, oil and gas companies could move into these areas in clean hydrogen, for example. Alberta has just announced a new uh, clean hydrogen strategy and renewable uh, fuels. Those types of areas could be significant exporter uh, potential in the future. Yeah. The federal government said it's going to continue to provide this type of financing support to oil and gas development projects in Canada. And... One thing I thought about when I heard that was like, this points to something that's come up before on the show with previous guests, which is that when it comes to climate change, there's everything we know we need to be doing to, you know, reach net zero. And then there are the realities and and the limits of what our politics will allow. And so this may be a little bit dark, but I want to say, I think there's a fair amount of skepticism around these conferences when we see the pictures of world leaders, you know, meeting for the 26th time. And I mean, how realistic do you think some of these net zero goals or phasing out the internal combustion engine and the targets we've set here in Canada are? So our institute has done analysis of um, Canada reaching its net zero goal by 2050 and determined that it was feasible and there are many different pathways to get there. And the other thing that our recent report that we we just released that looks at competitiveness considerations for Canada through global low carbon transition is that it's actually in Canada's economic interest in many cases to to take action in the nearer term in order to to help build the resilience in our companies, help position them for some of these these new uh, global opportunities that are emerging, and to generate domestic demand 
for companies that are developing technologies and products that are going to be sources of growth and jobs in the future. And I think this shift is happening globally, too. I mean, you see it in the language of uh, the UK and, and um, the Biden administration that really this transition is about jobs. It's about competitiveness. It is about economic growth. And I think that's a different mindset than, than we had in the past, where we saw all action on climate change as, as negative for the economy. It's really not the case anymore. Right. You put out this report, Sink or Swim, and I, I think one of the conclusions you can draw from the report is that there are a lot of opportunities, but you also pointed out in the report that there are a lot of vulnerable communities in places like Alberta and, and other places too. What kinds of things do you think those communities where the economy is heavily dependent on oil production, what kinds of things can they be doing differently to prepare themselves for the climate transition? Well, a lot of it is going to be community dependent. I mean, um, if you look at a, at a community that's dependent on an iron and steel facility or a chemicals facility, you know, our report distinguishes the types of companies and what they might do to be become transition ready. So for, for some of those emissions intensive manufacturing companies, it's investing in emission reductions and, and really becoming low carbon leaders globally. That's going to actually improve their competitiveness and their resilience to global market change. But when we talk about sectors such as oil and gas or coal mining, and we, we define those as demand decline sectors, where the biggest risk to, risk to their profitability is shrinking global demand for their product, those companies and the communities dependent on them are going to have to shift into new business lines, new areas, and big opportunities are there in terms of where global markets are going to grow. So as I mentioned, clean hydrogen, biofuel production, renewable energy, carbon capture and storage technology, there are, are lots of different opportunities that these communities could move into. And it's a matter of thinking about that really soon because it takes time to attract those sources of investment and to get the support they need from provincial and federal governments for an enabling infrastructure, retraining of the workforce, and other supports that can really help to attract those investments. Yeah, I think this may be a good bridge into a, another paper you recently wrote that basically said we need to change how we talk and think about climate change policies. And it specifically said we need to stop using cost-benefit analyses, which is better suited for incremental changes. But that climate change is going to need system-wide transformation. How can we get people more comfortable with a wholesale transformation of economies? Yeah, one of the things that people are most concerned about is uh, losing jobs and losing income. And when we're talking about transformation as opposed to incremental change, we're not talking about destruction. We're talking about shifting into new areas and hopefully having as much creation of jobs and economic growth. And if governments and businesses take the actions they need to, then it can be a very positive change with new opportunities for workers, new sources of income. So, you know, it doesn't have to be negative. And, and a lot of these things that companies will do, and I use the example of auto manufacturers, they're moving now, many of them on their own into electric vehicles and, you know, battery manufacturing. And that's not just because of climate policy, that's because that's where the global market is going. And they know that. So when we think about putting in place something like a zero emission vehicle mandate, we shouldn't view all of the, the expenditures that those auto manufacturers would undertake as a cost. 
because in fact, they're investments. They're investing in their future competitiveness. And then at the same time, a cost-benefit analysis doesn't recognize that that shift to electric vehicles is going to generate demand across a wide range of things from vehicle charging, electric vehicle battery recycling. And and Canada has companies in those areas that are very successful and poised to grow. But right now, cost-benefit analysis wouldn't take those companies into consideration at all. It would only focus on the large incumbent companies. So what I suggest is that we should really be shifting to a, a new approach to evaluating policies, thinking about the risks and opportunities instead of purely a narrow view of costs and benefits. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It does seem like this is one of the sort of obstacles to our current economy is just getting people comfortable with sweeping transformation and getting governments to commit large amounts of money to innovation prospects that may not always pan out. And I thought your cost-benefit analysis really sort of addressed that, but it does sort of shift the onus onto the people to think differently about some of these changes. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we highlight in our report, too, is the challenge of what we call status quo bias, where people are, are more comfortable with the way things are, the way things were, and, and they will push very strongly to maintain that and, and to try and stick as closely as possible to what is there today. But what we conclude from our analysis of, of looking at the risks and opportunities for Canada's economy is that, in fact, Canada would be better off with bold strategies that taking a significant action earlier actually positions our economy to be more successful. And that is going to be uncomfortable for people that making bold changes, taking uh, some risks with those big investments is certainly going to be uncomfortable for people. Yeah. I mean, we're also living through one of the strangest periods of a lot of our lives. And I'm talking about the pandemic now. I don't think a lot of us thought or imagined something like this would be coming anytime soon if you had asked in, say, December 2019. How do you think the pandemic has affected people's attitudes or or even the limits of our policies towards climate change? Because I think there was a lot of optimism at one point that we could see these pretty big transformations. But now that we're slowly sort of starting to come out of the pandemic, I'm not sure that optimism totally remains. Well, you know, I've been working on climate policy for, for a long time. And generally in the past, when there have been big issues or economic shocks that have arrived, interest, policy interest in climate change has waned. And I partly expected that to happen with the pandemic, but instead we've seen it increase, that there is a growing recognition of the need to take action on climate change. And partly because we're seeing more of the impacts of a changing climate and and that it really is hitting home in terms of wildfires and and floods and, and heat waves and the youth movement as well that's that's really you know calling for for more significant action so and with the pandemic maybe there's a more of a realization of the interconnectedness that uh, that we have with the world and that something in one part of the world can really affect everyone and that that this is a collective action problem where we all need to to chip in and and really do our part yeah i mean i've sort of been 
asking this in different ways throughout this interview, but what to your mind are the biggest obstacles that Canada faces? And I'm thinking specifically about the economy here when it comes to addressing climate change. In terms of the economy, I I worry most about missed opportunity, that we're so focused on the risk side of the equation and, and managing the risks and preventing preventing risks. We're, we're missing opportunities. And we see that in the data when we look at really promising Canadian clean tech companies that have been acquired by foreign companies. And these could have been future sources of Canadian growth and jobs. And we're in a way, we're letting them slip away by this focus on the current sources of the economy, which are still important. But that need to capture the opportunities is really there and it's important over the coming years. If we see more of these promising companies leave Canada or, or fail to attract the investment they need to grow, then we really um, won't be well positioned for uh, the way the economy is going. I just want to go back to COP26 for a minute where we started off by saying, you know, there were all these commitments to net zero, which are really going to bring on transformational changes over the next two and a half decades. But you've also said people are more comfortable with kind of incremental changes. And I mean, you alluded to it at the beginning at one point that we can't just sort of phase out oil and gas overnight. We need to do it gradually. What's your sort of take on how we reconcile these two competing needs? One is to gradually change and one is to transform. I mean, you've said we can't use the cost benefit analysis. We need to think about it more in risk reward. What else would you like to see happening more? Well, when we, in our report, we acknowledge that there's uncertainty on the timing in particular. Um, we, the direction that the world is going is um, clear. I would say it's inevitable that we're going to see significant global low carbon transformation. But in specific markets, it's uncertain as to when exactly that's going to happen. How long do we have where, where that oil demand remains strong or um, natural gas demand increases? And so... There's a bit of a hedging strategy that's needed. You know, yes, we don't stop doing those things immediately. But what if those things, the demand for for those products comes down much more quickly than we anticipate? We need to have in place other businesses, other products that will succeed as those things decline. So, you know, shifting to electric vehicles, for example, is going to be one of the main drivers of declining oil demand. So, Let's make sure that we're well positioned on the upside of that equation as well, as opposed to, uh, you know, focusing only on uh, minimizing the decline. Yeah, there's certainly a lot to think about, but I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking with us, Rachel. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks. Happy to be here. That was Rachel Sampson, Research Director for Clean Growth at the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices, an independent think tank in Ottawa. Thank you for listening to our show and for sharing episodes and showing support for Down to Business. You've been listening to original music that was composed and performed by this show's producer, Bryce Hall. Yadula Hussein is the editor, and Pamela Heaven provided web support. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. Until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com or in any of our five weekly newsletters covering energy, the economy, finance, the workplace, and investing.